Uh, welcome to our family gathering. For those of you who may be new here this morning, my name is David, and I am kind of filling in for Jay this week. He's given me the opportunity to present this morning's message to you while he prepares for next week's message as well as our uh, Christmas Eve message. So this, <clears throat> our Advent series this year has been called Christmas himself. Now, this may seem like a rather strange title, because when we think of Christmas, we tend to think of it as a holiday, as a season, or maybe even event, as an event, in which case the reflexive pronoun itself might seem a little bit more appropriate, Christmas itself. Well, when we use the um, pronoun himself, we're actually referring to we're referring back to a person, but if you stop and think about the origin of the word Christmas, it actually comes from the Old English Christe Masse, which literally means Christ's Mass. And that is exactly who Christmas is all about. It's a, it's a celebration of a person, of God himself, God the Son, the second person in the Trinity, who came to earth to show us who he truly is and to redeem us and to reconcile us to himself, even while we were still sinners. And so, therefore, Christmas is not about a what, but about a who. And what? No, 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 not that who. Next slide. All right, that's more like it. I am going to have to have a talk with the guy who does these PowerPoints. I'm going to have to beat him. No, on a more serious note, our scripture text for this series has been Colossians 1. Now, this may seem like a rather unusual text for an Advent series. Our first inclination is typically to go to the Annunciation or the birth narratives of Matthew or Luke's Gospels, or maybe even to some of the Messianic prophecies of Isaiah or some other Old Testament prophet. But a little over a week ago, Dr. Albert Moeller, president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, was delivering the seminary's commencement address, and he said this, in the truest sense, the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation is the Christmas story. Rightly understood, there is no text in all of Holy Scripture that is not related to Christmas as promise, fulfillment, gospel, and future promise. So as we reflect on the baby in the manger, this chapter, Colossians 1, challenges us to ponder who he is and what he does. In what is perhaps the most famous Christmas song of our time, Mary, Did You Know? Comedian Mark Lowry wrote this, Mary, did you know that your baby boy has walked where angels trod? When you kissed your little baby, you kissed the face of God. Now, it may be difficult, if not impossible, for us to fathom that that baby in the manger was the God of the universe, but that is exactly who he was. When the angel Gabriel announced to Joseph that Mary's baby had been conceived by the Holy Spirit, he said this in Matthew's Gospel. He said, Mary will give birth to a son, 
and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus literally means the Lord saves or the Lord is salvation. And then Matthew says all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. And then he quotes Isaiah 7:14. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. That baby in the manger was Emmanuel, God with us. So this morning we want to focus on Jesus, our God. In the scripture passage that we'll be looking at, the Apostle Paul emphasizes the exaltation and preeminence of Christ. In this paragraph, Paul mentions several unique characteristics of Christ which qualify him to have the supremacy in our lives. In fact, there's probably no other passage in Scripture that lists so many characteristics of Christ and his deity. He is the supreme sovereign of the universe, God with us. So if you have your Bibles this morning, uh, you can take them out or take out your smartphones and turn to Colossians chapter 1. And if you don't have a Bible with you, you can use one of the chair Bibles in front of you and turn to page 821. Our text is from Colossians chapter 1, and we will be reading verses 15 through 20. Paul said, the, Im- the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Now from this passage, I want, I want to point out five characteristics of who he is, of who Christ is, and what he does as God. Now, in a Bible college or seminary homiletics class, that's where they teach you, you know, the rudiments of preaching, they typically preach you, prepare you, excuse me, they typically teach you to prepare and deliver a three-point sermon. But we're mostly adults here this morning, and the operative term is mostly. (laughs) So I think we can handle two extra points. Besides, have you ever read the Sermon on the Mount? You know, if Jesus had preached that sermon in a homiletics class, he would have flunked it for sure. So I don't feel too bad by bending the rules just a little bit here this morning. The first point that I want to make is that Jesus is the God who reveals. Paul says that the Son is the image of the invisible God. Now, in our culture and language, whenever we think of an image, we typically think of 
something that is a visual representation of someone or something. The representation could be a photograph, a motion picture, a sculpture, or you know what have you. And the thing that it represents could be something concrete or even an abstract idea or concept. But in our language and culture, the image is not the same as the thing that it represents. And to give you an illustration of what I'm talking about here, on the screen, what you are seeing is a picture of Mount Rushmore. You are not seeing Mount Rushmore itself. You're simply seeing a picture of it. To see Mount Rushmore itself, you would have to travel to the badlands of South Dakota, and there you would be able to see the actual Mount Rushmore. And carved in the rock of that mountain, you would see a representation of four late presidents, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Theodore Roosevelt, and Abraham Lincoln. You would not see Washington, Jefferson, Roosevelt, or Lincoln themselves. because, Well, partly because they're all dead, and Roosevelt is probably the only one who even set foot in the Badlands. So you would not see them... You would not see them, but simply a representation of them. But to the Apostle Paul, an image was much more than just a visual representation. For Paul, Jesus was the actual manifestation of God himself. This concurs with the first, with the very first verse of John's Gospel, where John writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the word was God. That last phrase, and the word was God, is rightly interpreted to mean that all that God is, the word is, the word, Jesus Christ, is as well. And as the image of the, as God is perfectly expressed and revealed in Jesus Christ. He goes on to say in John 1.14, the word, that is Jesus, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. As the image of the invisible God, the word made flesh, Emmanuel, revealed God to man. Consider these verses also from John's Gospel. In, one, in John 1.18, he says, No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 30, I and the Father are one. And in chapter 14, verse 9, he says, Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So from all of this, we can see that Jesus is the God who reveals himself. He reveals who God is. He reveals God himself. Jesus is also the God who creates. In verse 15, the last part of that verse says that he is the firstborn over all creation. Now, first I want to explain what this does not mean. There are some sects 
I'm not up here to bash any particular group or denomination, but there are some sects who profess to be Christians, yet deny the divinity of, of Jesus Christ. And they will even use this passage, in fact, this very phrase, firstborn over or of creation, to try to support their position. They will insist that there was a time when Jesus did not exist and that he was created by God, that he was the first of God's creation, and that he then created everything else after he himself was created. But that is not what Paul is saying here. If Paul had wanted to say that there was a time when Jesus did not exist and that he had been created by God the Father, he could have, and I'm sure he would have said, that Jesus was the first created of God's creation. He had Paul had a perfectly good Greek word for saying that, but instead he said that Jesus was the first that Jesus is the firstborn of creation. In ancient Hebrew and other Near Eastern cultures, the firstborn was the one who received preeminence. In fact, the word firstborn was probably as much of a legal term as it was a biological or chronological term, because the the firstborn received the birthright and subsequent headship of the family. In other words, he was the chief heir of the family's estate. Now, the firstborn was usually the oldest son in the birth order, but that was not always the case. There were provisions in Mosaic law where the birthright could go to a younger son or in some cases, even a daughter. And in fact, if a son was the sole heir of the family's estate, he could even be called the the only son. Uh, For example, in Genesis 22, Isaac is referred to as Abraham's only son. Now, if you were Doug Peterson, you might throw the challenge flag here and, and call for... You know, and ask for that call to be reviewed. You'd be like, whoa, wait a minute, time out. Isaac wasn't his only son. In fact, Isaac wasn't even the oldest son. Ishmael was Abraham's oldest son. What about Ishmael? But remember that Ishmael was not the son of promise. Isaac was the son of promise. Therefore, Isaac was the sole heir of Abraham's estate And so he was called the only son. And this is the point that Paul is making here when he says that Jesus is the firstborn of creation. He's saying that Jesus is the chief heir of creation. And then he states why in the next verse. Now, in verse 16, three prepositions are used here. Paul says that all things were created in him. Now, some translations, like the ESV, say by him. But this is to say that Jesus is the source or the first cause of creation. Creation began with him. In Revelation 3.14, he is called the the beginning or the ruler, depending on your translation, of God's creation. Those words, beginning and ruler, both come from the same Greek word, arche. And one of the English cognates of arche is our English word architect. 
And in the same way that an architect is the first cause of a building in that he designed it, Jesus is the first cause of creation because he is the one who designed it. He, you could say, he is the architect of creation. And then Paul says, all things were created through him. So Jesus is the agent of creation. Not only is he the architect who designed it, but he is also the builder who put it all together and brought it to fruition. John 1.3 says that through him all things were made, and without him nothing, literally not one thing, was made that has been made. You know, you can... Um, you can share this one with your watchtower friends when they show up next Saturday morning. <clears throat> because what this passage is saying is that <laughs> if it was made, he made it. And if he didn't make it, it wasn't made. And since he could not have made himself, he wasn't made, right? And all things were created for him. He owns all things by virtue of having created them. And I know I've used this illustration before, but if you write a song or a book, you obtain a copyright on it, signifying your ownership of it. Or if you, if you invent a new product, you can obtain a patent on it. These things signify your ownership of it. And again, you own it because you created it. And in the same way, Jesus holds the deed to creation because he is the one who created it. And also, when it says all things were created for him, all things were created for his glory. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. The... The Westminster Shorter Catechism says that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But Jesus not only created everything, he is the glue that holds it all together because Jesus is the God who sustains. The laws of nature that seemingly hold our universe together and keep it running like clockwork uh, whether it's the laws of physics, be it the gravitational pulls of, of, of planets and solar systems, or even, or even of atoms, or even if it's the laws of, of chemistry, like the laws of, in physics, there's also the laws of conservation of matter and energy. And, and what, even if it's the laws of chemistry, we're dealing with the physical properties of materials and how they act, interact, and react with one another. They are what they are because of Jesus' sustaining activity in the universe. Jesus would not have to do anything violent to destroy the universe. All he would have to do is simply remove his hand and cease his sustaining activity and everything in the universe except for the triune God himself would instantly cease to exist. Paul affirmed this, as did the Greek philosophers that he debated on Mars Hill. He quoted one of them, the Cretan philosopher Epimenides, who said, 
In him we live and move and have our being. Acts 17.28. Now for the record, I don't think Epimenides was talking about Christ, but Paul certainly was. The Levites in Nehemiah 9.6 said, You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their starry host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you. Jesus is also the God who heads his church. Because the church is the body of Christ. Paul's allusion to the church here refers to the invisible or universal church, which here and elsewhere in scripture refers, is referred to as the body of Christ. Every believer is baptized into this body by the Holy Spirit the exact moment that he or she comes to faith in Jesus Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 12, Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body. In Ephesians 5.30, he says, We are members of his body. In 1 Corinthians 6.15, Do you not know that your body that your bodies are members of Christ himself. And in 1 Corinthians 12:27, now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is part of it. Now, this is not in my notes here, but I might mention that the you in that verse is plural. In formal English, you can be singular or plural, but unfortunately it can be difficult to tell them apart to tell whether, you know, which one it is, you know, outside of context. Uh, but if Paul were using informal English, depending on what part of the country he was from, if he were from the Northeast, he would have said, yous are the body of Christ. If he was from the South, y'all are the body of Christ. And if he was from the Midwest, yuns are the body of Christ. So the you is plural, but body is singular. Because the body is made up of many parts, but yet there is only one body. And Paul says that Christ is its head. Paul said, Jesus is the head of the body. Jesus said, I'm sorry, Paul said, he, Jesus, is the beginning. And here again, we have that Greek word arche, which, as I pointed out earlier, can, can also mean ruler. And in this context, this might even be the appropriate translation, even though most translations render it as beginning. But Paul said he is also the firstborn from among the dead. And here again, we have that word firstborn. Now, clearly, Paul was not indicating that Jesus was the first chronologically to rise from the dead. You can think of Lazarus, Jairus' daughter. There were... There were several others who had come back from the dead previously, but they all did something that Jesus didn't do. Do you know what that was? Exactly. They died again. 
Jesus was the first, however, to rise in an immortal body, and as such, he now heads a whole new order as, so- as its sovereign head. His, resur- his resurrection also marked his triumph over sin and death. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15:20, he calls him the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He calls him the first fruits because unlike Lazarus, Jairus' daughter, and the others, he rose never to die again. Romans 1.4 says that he was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. And he rose so that he, in everything, he might have the supremacy. Jesus said of himself in Matthew 28, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So Jesus is the ruler over all creation because he created it. He is the ruler of his church because he not only created it, but he also bought it with his blood and redeemed it by his resurrection. And the fifth point that I want to make is Jesus is the God who reconciles. I'm not going to belabor this one too much because Jay is going to talk more next Sunday, Lord willing, about Jesus' activity of reconciliation. But there are two things I just want to bring out. First, who was reconciled to whom? In this, in this well-known Christmas hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Charles Wesley wrote, Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. It's worth noting in this verse, however, that it is not God who is reconciled to sinners, but sinners who are reconciled to God. Because we are the ones who left God and needed to be brought back to him. We were God's enemies. But Paul says in Romans 5.10 that while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. And how were, how were we reconciled? He reconciled us to God by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. Jesus paid the penalty of sin by his own death. His resurrection showed that his payment was accepted by God and it marked his triumph over sin and death. The second half of that verse says, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus reconciles us by washing us in his blood by forgiving us, by cleansing us of our sins, by clothing us in his righteousness, and then presenting us holy and blameless before the Father. So in summary, Jesus is the eternal God of the universe who reveals, creates, sustains, heads his church, and reconciles. And yes, I know I have five transitive verbs up there and only one direct object, but I think I've covered the direct object in the message. (laughs) So what difference does this make to us? 
there are three things that I would like to that I would like to bring out by way of application. The first is reflect. When the shepherds visited the Christ child and told everyone what they had heard, Luke says that Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. And I believe I've shared this with you before, but I remember reading one time about a young child who was quoting this verse and kind of got his words mixed up, and he said that Mary treasured up all these things and pounded them in her heart. And maybe that's what we need to do sometimes, is treasure up all of these things and pound them into our hearts. So this Christmas season, when we think of that child in the manger, let's join with Mary in reflecting on who he is, the eternal God of the universe, who reveals, creates, sustains, heads his church, and reconciles. Paul said, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Jesus is all of these things, so let's think about him this Christmas season. But it's not enough just to acknowledge that Jesus is God or that he died on the cross for our sins. We have to, you have to believe that he died for your sins, that he can forgive your sins and give you eternal life, and then you have to trust him to do it. Receive him, and you will receive the greatest Christmas gift that anyone could ever receive. And our third response should be to worship. The Westminster Confession of Faith and the 1689 London Baptist Confession state that religious worship is to be given to God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and to him alone, not to angels, saints, or any other creatures. Some people think of worship as a duty, and in some ways maybe it is because God did command it. But Worship is also a privilege. Jesus told the Samaritan woman at the well that true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. We can go through all the rudiments of worship, singing, praying, reading our Bible, giving our tithes and offering, but unless they're done in spirit and in truth, They're just empty rituals, and that is not the kind of worship that the Father seeks. So how do we worship in spirit and in truth? As I mentioned earlier, the Westminster Shorter Catechism says that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And as I've also mentioned before, John Piper tweaks this ever so slightly He says that man's chief end is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. You want to be the kind of worshiper that the Father seeks? Then just enjoy him. Enjoy him with passion. 
enjoy his creation, enjoy his redemption that he has wrought through Jesus Christ. And then the rudiments of worship will not just be a duty, but they will become a delight. Then we will be able to sing with the hymn writer, Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him. Christ the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, we thank you, Heavenly Father, that you sent your only Son, your only begotten Son, into the world. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came into the world, that you became flesh and made your dwelling among us. You were and still are God with us, that you came to reveal God to us, that you came You had already created the universe, but you came to make us new creations in in you and in yourself. That you also sustain us. We thank you that you are the one who heads up the church. And we thank you, most of all, for your reconciliation. Even for us, but that you rose again victorious, gloriously and victorious over sin and death, and that we, by simply receiving you, can receive life eternal. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you have baptized us into the body of Christ, and that we are now all one body. We thank you, we praise you, and we just ask that you would help us to ponder, to pound these things into our hearts this Christmas season, to remember that Christmas is not about a what. It is about a who, and that who is you. We give you all the honor, all the glory, and all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.